Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. There was an incredible health and science story this week as we learned of a 22-year-old man named Joseph Dimio, who was the world's first person to receive a successful face and double hand transplant. After a car crash left Joseph with 80% of his body burned and 20 surgeries later, his doctors thought he would be a good candidate for the transplant. He is now six months out from his surgery and healing and progressing very well. For more on how this all happened, we'll speak to Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. He received 20 different surgeries and his plastic surgeon said, look, I've done everything I can do and introduced him to a surgeon at NYU Langone who had done a number of face transplants. That gentleman saw Dr. Eduardo Rodriguez. He saw uh, Joe Demio and said, I can help you, but I think you should have hands as well. And it was about a year long process, a little less than a year of testing Joe to make sure that his eyes, despite the burns on his face, he couldn't move his eyelids, but his eyes themselves were fine. His teeth were fine. So underneath this burned facade, he actually was in pretty good shape. So that made him a good candidate. He was young. He was also incredibly determined. He wanted to get his life back and his independence back. So he was a great candidate for this procedure. And miraculously, they found a donor who would work for him because he'd had blood transfusions after the accident. He had a lot of antibodies in his bloodstream. And so 94% of people in the world, his body would have rejected a transplant from them. So they needed one of these 6% people and they found him about 10 months after they started looking. Obviously, the tragic side of a transplant is one person gets to live, but somebody else has passed in order to make the donation. So it was an incredibly generous donation from the family to give the face and lower arms from the forearm down to this young man. And they're six months out from the surgery now, and the team is trying to declare a success with it. Obviously, he's way ahead of schedule. As you mentioned, the swelling in the face will go down over time. But, you know, he's already regained some sensation in the hands. He's been able to use them, you know, brush his hair and all that stuff and do even some light exercises, lifting weights, doing push-ups from like a bench and stuff. I mean, that's a lot within six months. And as you mentioned, the donor gave everything, you know, from the top of the head down to the neck, over to the ears and the arms at the forearms. That's a lot. And a lot of stuff to connect, to reconnect. You mentioned that the team, the operation team, spent over a year practicing all of this. They went through great pains to be able to do this right. And it was about an 80-person team involved. So it's a huge number of people and probably another 50 or 60 with, uh, involved in his rehabilitation. So this is not a simple procedure at all, but obviously dramatic for this young man. It's given him a life back. And yes, he's got two goals left. He's achieved everything. As you said, he can shower by himself. Spaghetti is his favorite food, but he was having trouble picking up. He couldn't pick up a piece of pizza or a hamburger with his burned hands. He didn't have enough opposable thumb and forefinger, enough grip to do that. And now he can eat by himself that way. He can play pool. He's very into physical fitness and he is lifting weights. Even on days he doesn't do physical therapy, he does that at home. He tries to stay fit, but he likes food a little too much. Um, <laughs> so he's not, a, he's not as fit as, as he would like to be. But it's really an incredible story. The, the other piece that I found really striking about this story is that in order to help the donor family, which obviously was making this, this incredible donation and to help them feel less of a sense of loss, actually during this surgery, 
an aspect of NYU printed out, 3D printed the man's face and arms, and they put it back on the corpse so that he would look normal to the grieving family. Um, And I just found that an astounding aspect and obviously important to the family. And we don't know much about the donor other than he died of a stroke. I know the family wants to remain anonymous for now. And uh, Joseph did send them a letter, you know, thanking them for, for all of it and everything. One of the other interesting things that I thought, too, was kind of the psychological effects of this whole thing. That's why the doctor said they wanted to give him the face transplant, too, because a lot of times victims can't recognize themselves if they've been disfigured or something. But they can recognize themselves a lot quicker, you know, if they do the face transplant and things like that. So that was the psychological effects of this was also very interesting. Yeah, I found that fascinating as well, that even in in an MRI and a brain scan, you know, when you look at a picture of yourself, if you're severely burned, you don't see that as you. But when you see any other face, he was able to very quickly adapt to having this, this new face and seeing it as himself and seeing his hands as his own hands, as opposed to something outside of himself. Well, I, like I said, just an incredible story. Uh, wish him the best of luck and, and continued right healing and and just getting back to normal as best as he can. I know he's got, as you mentioned, he's very driven. He's got a lot of goals still that he wants to achieve. So good luck to him. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This week, we also had two big Amazon stories. First, we learned that Amazon founder and CEO Jeff Bezos is stepping down from his post, and instead he will be serving as executive chairman, so he won't be going far. But another story with possibly even bigger implications for Amazon, we learned that starting February 8th, workers at their Bessemer, Alabama warehouse will be voting whether to unionize or not. If they vote to do so, it will be the first Amazon warehouse in the United States to have union representation. And this could have a big impact on the company as other warehouses could also push for the same. And in the meantime, Amazon is doing everything they can to discourage workers from voting yes. For more on this unionization effort, we'll speak to Jay Green, reporter at The Washington Post. There are a group of workers at a warehouse that Amazon just opened last March in Bessemer, Alabama, which is just outside of Birmingham, and they want to organize a union. They filed with the NLRB to form the union. The NLRB has determined that there are 5,805 workers that would be considered part of the bargaining unit. And so unless some legal actions by Amazon prevail, those workers will vote or have the opportunity to vote starting on Sunday. There's a seven-week mail-in period to vote, and they vote yes or no if they want to be part of the union or not. Amazon, for its part, obviously says the workers there don't need a union. They point to the wage that they start workers off. I think it's like $50.30 an hour, which is above the federal minimum wage and higher comparable to a lot of other places. You can say they give them health care, vision and dental benefits, a retirement plan. So they're touting all these things as a reason for not wanting to go for it with a unionization. The union counters, right? And they, they say it isn't really about money, although they wouldn't mind more money too, but they talk about things like dignity and respect. But, you know, workers in Amazon's warehouses are measured on specific performance metrics. So if you are someone who stows items as they come into the warehouse, you have to stow a certain number of items in a given time period, in an hour. And if you fall below that performance metric, you can be marked up. There are other things where, you know, workers say the facility in Bessemer, it's in Alabama, it can get hot in the summer. Workers say there have been, you know, workers who've been overheated because of that. 
there are other those sorts of complaints as well. And then the other thing that some of the workers have talked about, too, is we're in the midst of this pandemic. And at the beginning of the pandemic, Amazon gave workers a bonus, a $2 an hour bonus. Workers called it hazard pay, although Amazon doesn't call it that. But at the end of May, they Amazon eliminated that. Eliminated that. And workers would love to see that bonus come back because, as we all know, the pandemic continues to rage. Let's continue on this just for a little bit more. You mentioned that the warehouse has only been open for about 10 months. Was there anything that sparked this call for unionization or was it just kind of people haven't been happy since it started opening? I know the pandemic plays a huge role in that and there was a lot of safety concerns, but I think Amazon put in almost a billion dollars into coronavirus safety efforts. I think this is across the entire company now, not necessarily just in this one uh, warehouse. But was there something else that might have sparked this or is it is it really just the workers kind of unhappy there? It's interesting because it, it was surprising that it turned up at a new warehouse and also in the conservative South where unions don't always flourish. So it is a little surprising. But the workers that I talked with have said, you know, it's really about the conditions that they have seen since they started. And I do think a lot of it actually relates to the pandemic. There are two things I think that are going on. One is sort of the obvious one, which is people are scared, right? They're showing up to a job and they see coworkers have the virus and they get scared that they might get it too. And it, it affects not just their lives, of course, but their families' lives as well. But I think the other thing that's going on is as the pandemic raged, more and more people started ordering online. And so, you know, you'd get all kinds of things from Amazon, among others, that you might have typically driven to the store to get. And Amazon's made a ton of money off of that, but it's yeah. also put a lot of pressure on these workers to produce and to sort of meet the expectations of the customers who are ordering the stuff. The big fear for Amazon, they just added 400,000 workers during the pandemic. They have 1.1 million workers worldwide. And in Europe, it's a lot different. Unions are kind of enshrined into the work culture there. So a lot of Amazon workers over there are already unionized. And the big fear for Amazon is that if one big warehouse like this goes to unions, then it's going to spark these fights across the country. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I think that's why Amazon is particularly concerned about this. You see it in the, the methods they are engaging in to try and discourage workers from joining this union. But I talked with Rich Trump, who is the head of the AFL-CIO for this piece, and they are supporting this union drive, which is being led by the retail warehouse and department store union. But the AFL is getting behind it because they know the consequences of this. They know that if they can convince one Amazon warehouse to join a union, others will as well. Let's talk a little bit about what's going to happen next and what's happening now too. the mail in balloting for these workers to say, you know, if they want to be part of a union now begins on February 8th. And a lot of workers are reporting that, you know, there's a lot of anti-union messaging there at the workplace. It follows them to the bathroom and these very limited bathroom breaks that they say they get, you know, like inside the stall, there's a, a, a little poster or something that says, do you want to pay your union dues? Where's that money going to go to? And this kind of gets into all this interesting part of it. You know, Alabama is a right to work state, so you don't really have to pay union dues, but they're making that an issue. You've spoken to a lot of people there from that plant, and a lot of them do say they do support the union. How, how has all this been playing out? So as you say, the vote starts on Sunday, or the ballots are mailed out to workers on Sunday, and the voting period lasts about seven weeks. And it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. Because of the pandemic, the NLRB is allowing 
for mail-in balloting, which is something they typically might not have done. And so it changes a little bit of the dynamics of the campaign. But right now, Amazon is working very hard to convince the workers in that warehouse not to vote for the union. And, you know, as you mentioned, I have something in my article about Amazon putting up a flyer on the inside of a bathroom stall, uh, on, on the inside of many bathroom stalls in their warehouse. They're also texting workers fairly regularly. They're engaging in what is often a common practice during union campaigns, and that is what are these mandatory meetings forcing workers to come into training rooms and they get a half an hour or longer session about why the union is a terrible thing. Now, what's interesting is we'll have to see what happens starting on February 8th, because Amazon then is required to end those captive audience meetings. That's what they're called. They can engage in other types of electioneering, but that has to end. And so there will be this ongoing sort of churn of information that comes out over the next seven weeks as both Amazon and the union try to convince members to join their their cause. Jay Green, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Oscar. The last couple of weeks, we also saw the big roller coaster on Wall Street as Reddit users banded together to buy GameStop stock. But this is the story that I wanted to hear. A 24-year-old graduate student from MIT got on the GameStop train and turned $500 into over $200,000. He did it like many others, getting advice on the Wall Street Bet subreddit and felt like he was part of something bigger. In the end, his family and friends convinced him to sell before the stock dropped. For more on this graduate student's wild GameStop ride, we'll speak to Gregory Zuckerman, special writer at the Wall Street Journal. He's an easy guy to root for. He's a grad student, 24 years old, MIT. He's got a stipend of about $36,000 a year. So he's not like he's rolling in money. And basically, he had a little bit of cash, about $4,000 or so, that he decided to play with. And he did that starting about a year ago, uh, back in March, when the pandemic really began. And he lost a good chunk of it trading the market. So he was down to about $2,000, and then he stumbled upon Wall Street Bets, this uh, suddenly popular subreddit uh, on the Reddit site. And they were talking about GameStop, so he got excited, and he bought these options, which basically are bullish trades bet on GameStop. And yeah, he did really well. The article that you wrote, too, kind of talks about the roller coaster that he went on. He got in through Wall Street Bets like a lot of people did. He started feeling like he was becoming part of something bigger, you know, taking on Wall Street kind of thing. Then he started making some money and his family and friends had to, you know, have an intervention for him to say, hey, <laughs> don't play around too much. Cash out the money that you want, uh, that you have already. So part of that roller coaster, he started with 4000 went down to 2000 up to 15000 up to 80000 and then he sold at a little bit over 200000 Tell us a little bit about that sense of being a part of something bigger, because a lot of people were feeling that same way. That's exactly right. That's what I found most fascinating, that you're with a group, you're with a community. I think that's what a lot of people are attracted to when it comes to this uh, subreddit, Wall Street Bets. It's not just the money. Yeah, they love making the money they feel part of something larger. You know, we all want to be part of communities and not everyone goes to the church synagogue anymore. And we look for things and some people look for politics and now others are drawn to trading. And as you suggest, he sort of got into it early on. He was a little bit skeptical and 
being he, he was more of an investment decision and he made his best decision. He bought five hundred dollars. He only put five hundred dollars into these options, but before he knew it, he was caught up. He couldn't do anything else. Couldn't think about anything else. He was playing tennis with his friends and literally after every point in the match, he was whipping out his phone and checking the current price, how much he was making, how much he was losing. It, it was all encompassing and you know, he was thinking about selling, but he'd go on this site, this uh, Wall Street Bets, and they were saying, no, 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 it's going to 1000 it's going to 5000 don't sell, don't sell, and he got caught up in, in it, and I don't mean it disparaging to say it was cult-like, but you could see how people get caught up, and it becomes a frenzy, and that's what happened to him, and he almost, he jokingly calls it a mini-intervention, but he sort of had to have his friends step in and say, dude, sell, you're up $200,000, you don't know what's going to happen here, you need the money, sell, yeah. sell now, and he did. That was the mantra for a lot of people on Wall Street Bets, you know, hold, don't sell. We're going to keep riding this. We're going to keep riding that. It didn't really play out that way. He sold, when he sold, it was right before the all-time high. Thankfully, obviously, before it dropped. It was in like 300, 400 range. I, I don't remember exactly what the all-time high was. I checked right before we did the story, and the numbers changed constantly, so it could be different by the time, you know, you hear this. Uh, but it was about $93. He picked the perfect time, and... He told his parents right after he did it, he didn't want to worry them. He didn't want to stress them out about what he was doing. So he told them right after he got out, oh, by the way, are you, are you hearing about this GameStop craziness? And they were like, no, we don't want to think about GameStop shares. And then he's like, yeah, I just made $200,000 trading this thing. And his dad right away, I love the response. He's like, uh, were you insider trading <laughs> to his own son? But the mother's like, wasn't even like taken by it until she heard a few days later some segment on NPR, but um, as you suggest, he, he says he got lucky. His mom was all impressed. His friends were impressed. He's like, no, I got lucky here because he got out at the right time. And if it wasn't for his friends sort of leaning on him to get out, he probably would have held on and he'd be down a lot. So a lot of it's luck and you feel bad for the people that got in at the end, but he got out at the right time. That's why yeah. I love this story. Really, as you said at the beginning, he's an easy guy to root for. He's a graduate student. The way he was pretty frugal going through about his life, you recounted a story, him buying chicken for the whole week and cooking it with rice and pasta so he didn't have to spend too much on food costs. It's just, this is the kind of stories you want to hear when something like this happens. And that's what it was. You know, a lot of it was luck, riding that roller coaster and just kind of ending right at the right time. So it's it's just a great story, I think. So here's a guy, yeah, he would cook up a storm Sunday night every week and then eat the same exact meal. And he still does. I don't know if he's going to change his diet but he eats the same exact meal lunch and dinner every day and every night it's all just chicken thighs and some rice and some pasta and once in a while some frozen vegetables so yes he's not you know rolling in money and he's trying to save money for school and such and he is an easy guy to root for and, and you can see why people get caught up and you feel like you're taking back the power from wall street and you know, when you press him on that whole theme, he realizes he's got friends who work on Wall Street. He realizes that not everyone's evil on Wall Street, but it feels good to think you're the David and you're going up against Goliath. So one of the reasons we wrote the story is it shows there, there are a lot of reasons why people are making these trades. Some are just trying to make a lot of money, but other people feel there's a larger cause. Now, should they be doing it or not? I don't know. It's not for me to say, but I found his story quite interesting. Gregory Zuckerman, special writer at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, great to be here. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.